Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Season 7 Best Bits. My name is Louis Strong and I host this podcast, Headstrong. Now, if this is the first time you're listening to anything about Headstrong, this is a podcast where I sit down with a number of people in the public eye to talk to them about their lives, their careers and their journey and particular stories that have helped shape them who they are from the highs and the lows, exploring their vulnerabilities I do this because I want to learn what the word headstrong means to them. And to me, it means to believe in yourself, to talk about your vulnerabilities and to reinforce your self-worth. I have had an absolutely incredible Series 7 and I've got many people to thank, including my editor, my graphic designer, everybody that's come onto the podcast and of course you who listen to the podcast and make it so successful. If you have enjoyed this series, please do go leave it a rating and a review and share it with all your friends and family, particularly those episodes that you love. Now, on this episode, I've picked out some of my favourite moments on this series of the podcast, including from Joe Latrulio, Kit Connor, Rebecca Adlington, David Miller, James Bracey and James Haskell. I really hope you enjoy these highlights of Headstrong Season 7. When things become overwhelming then, particularly when the spotlight is on you, how do you cope with that? And how have you coped with ego and spotlight and fame? Uh, I don't like it. (laughs) uh, I'm I'm uncomfortable with it. Uh, I... It was never why, but I also, but I also know it's part of the job. I don't, I, mm-hmm. I don't mean to sound sorry for myself. I'm not at all. I'm very lucky and I love what I do. And, and, um, to have the success that I have is I'm very, very grateful. Um, I, I handle it like this. Uh, it really, you know, these, these are people that, um, if, if fans come up and they're appreciating my work and I'm very thankful for that. Um, that, that part of the business is okay. 
Um, you know, I, I, the celebrity part, I, I'm not really. Um, and so I don't get too wrapped up in that. But when people come up and, and say that they really like the show, um, that's always great to hear. And I try to be kind. I try to be um, polite. And um, if they are, and, and that's, that's, how, that's how I approach it. Uh, I realize that, you know, even if I'm having a bad day, that, um, uh, you know, it's, it's just part, it's part of the deal. Um, you know, uh, fame is, is, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it, it's very easy to start focusing on the wrong things with, with stuff like that, you know, how are you um, with your own mental health and how have you experienced mental health as a journey through your career? Have you always been quite in touch with it? Uh, in generally, yeah, I struggle some, I struggle a lot with, um, self-doubt. I struggle a lot with, um, uh, you know, am I a fraud? Uh, am I really talented? Do, are people really, um, buying into this? I can't believe, wait, when are they going to find out? I don't have it. Um, that this is, this is, this is luck. So yeah, I, I struggle, I struggle with that from time to time. I think I have a handle on it. Um, now, nowadays, um, but, um, I meditate, you know, from time to time to try to keep that in check. Uh, but it's, it's, it's something that I'm aware I can slip into sometimes and I, I can get a bit, um, you know, self-destructive with, uh, with addictions, you know, um, I want to, I'm always careful of, of, of drinking, um, because I know that that, that could be an issue. So, you know, the, these are, this, this is something that I've learned to, um, keep an eye on and have friends that I can turn to and say like, Hey, uh, I, I'm, I'm having a tough time, uh, right now, you know, this is what I'm thinking, you know, uh, can I talk to you for a bit? Um, it's in and out. I think in general, it's, it's nice to be in a place with, uh, a family that supports me and, um, and friends that support me. Absolutely. Now I know I am aware, and if you're happy to talk about it, that you started seeing a mm. therapist recently again. Now there's a massive mm. stigma behind this and people saying it's an admission of weakness or there's a guilt attached to it. Yeah. I, it's how, a shame. how do you feel it's, about that? No, I, well, I, I, I think it's a shame that there is a stigma attached to that. I, I think it, it takes much courage to ask for help. I have trouble doing it. You know, um, part of the character in Outpost uh, it has trouble asking for help, and that's what gets her into trouble. And and so, you know, therapy and mental health is, I feel, is is, is such a overlooked problem nowadays. Um, and you know, anyone that has the the courage to say, "I'm slipping. I I need help." Should be applauded. Um, they're 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 allowing themselves to contribute more to their life and 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 the the people that love them. Like it's it, it's. I, I wish more people would do it. You know, um, it can it, it it it's helping it's helping me for sure. You found yourself in some remarkable credits today. I mean, we talk about Rocket Man. You've got this now, which is just absolutely phenomenal. Uh, TV shows, films. 
how often do you have those pinch yourself moments? I mean, was there a moment in this production where you were like, whoa, like this is a Netflix show or this is Olivia Coleman? I don't know what it was for you. What's your pinch yourself I mean, moment? I think Olivia Coleman definitely, definitely was one thing. I think um, we spent two days shooting with Olivia um, just because she's Olivia Coleman, you know, she's, she's very much in, in demand. Um, but we, we were so lucky to have her for those two days. And even for two days, she already just sort of, you know, she was so amazing and was just lovely to everyone. Uh, but I think that was like a massive pinch in the moment, just because, especially going from spending the rest of the shoot with a cast who was so fresh and so new, which was wonderful, you know, to have a cast full of young people who were new to the industry and everything was fresh and cool and exciting. Um, I loved that. But then at the same time to also go and get that sort of the other side of the table to go to Olivia Coleman, who has been in this industry for, you know, for, I mean, she's just achieved so much. That's yeah. the thing. She's I mean, just incredible. Exactly. And I think that's an, uh, an honor that not every actor sort of gets. And, you know, to be able to work with an Oscar every time, you know, I, I was able to do a film with Colin Firth, um, several years ago and that was amazing as well but to be able to have a scene especially some of the scenes that I had with Olivia Coleman were you know quite challenging and quite um, crucial to the show um, and yeah I mean I think it was just an absolute honour as an actor to be able to do that that whole cast is so strong as well it was so good yeah I think I think it's such a it's such a great young core um, and yeah there's so much talent there I think so we talk about the the show now being out mm. and it's as you say the, the graphic novels have a fan base and the show's become hugely popular mm. and now you've been catapulted into what can only be described as a spotlight well, you know what do, what do you think of this uh you know happening to you you like it's pretty it's crazy right it's absolutely mental i mean i, I honestly cuz like i said it always felt like our little show the fact that it's now been seen by so many people and, and had this kind of effect on so many people is wonderful. I mean, I think that it, it is definitely a little bit scary, you know, in certain ways, um, because I think you never quite feel prepared for it and you never feel ready. Um, but at the same time, it's amazing. You know, um, there was a Heartstopper fan who uh, tweeted out that um, they essentially used uh, my coming out scene uh, by showing it to their parents and use it to come out to their parents. Mm. Um, and I think like, I was just like, that is incredible to be yeah. able to, as a, as an 18 year old, to be able to like be given the opportunity to have that effect on someone's life and give them the confidence and, and kind of empower them to do that. Um, even just a little bit is, is incredible. Um, so I think that is honestly one of the most beautiful sort of sides of the job. I mean, I, I think that like, you know, the whole social media aspect, like suddenly gaining um, a couple million in, in just over a week is is utterly insane yeah. and slightly overwhelming because it's like, mm. you know, when I got, when I got, just before I got announced as Nick and uh, as playing Nick, I think I was at a, just under 10K. And then literally the day before Heartstopper came out, I was at about 200K and then suddenly it just blew up. Um, so, Yeah. It's crazy, but I'm I'm so grateful. And you know, anytime that I meet a Heartstopper fan, it's it's unbelievable. Um, I still just 
don't know why they're because uh, you know it's still just I, the way I see it is I, I'm very like a quite a normal guy just from Croydon just, so it's just a kid. bit odd I'm just kit so it, it, it's a bit strange that these you know these these wonderful people are so get so excited to to you know meet me or to to speak to me or anything like that I think that's a really um, humbling experience do you feel like you had imposter syndrome almost? Definitely. I definitely had that, especially for like that first six months. I didn't have a manager or like an agent um, to start with as well. So my mum, bless her, was like Jerry Maguire. She's like, yes, to Jonathan Ross. No, she's not doing Good Morning. No, she's not doing this. Yes, she could do this. My mum, bless her. I bet she loved it. Oh, she did, but she was very grateful when she could just go here to somebody else because she was finding it really difficult. She obviously had all of us and there was so much going off. Like people were invading her house. Like I really kind of felt sorry for them back here because they had like the press camped outside the house for 24 hours. And it mm. was like, come on guys. And it was just things like that. And my, my sisters used to stay up until like 3am replying to all the fan mail and like making sure that like it was all answered. And yeah, it was just... It, it was a lot for the family, so they were very grateful when the, when a manager took over. Did you, were you feeling anxious, kind of stepping out and being in the spotlight? Yeah. I think it was one of those at first as well. It was so amazing to go somewhere. Um, I can remember being asked to do a couple of things, like go to Strictly Come Dancing, for example, which I'm a huge fan of the show. And I was just like, oh, my God, yeah, like I want to go and watch. And it was just amazing to get asked to go to so many things. But then after a while, it was kind of like... If I'd go somewhere, I would then I then opened up this different world of social media and the negative side of it, which came in, which was in the art, press articles going, oh gosh, she looks horrible in this dress and and kind of all that negativity. And I think it just kind of opened those doors. And I didn't really understand that side of things because I'm just a girl who did sport like I wasn't like yes I had to put a dress on because that's what the events and that's what the criteria was but it wasn't an an area that I was probably comfortable with um and exposing yourself up into kind of that more celeb side of things that like the circle of shame as as like heat magazine used to be and all that sort of stuff so it definitely opened up a different side of things that definitely made me more anxious going, oh gosh, what are people going to say? What are they going to write about me? What's going to happen? Um, and it, it just, you start to then ask them questions, definitely. And fast forward to 2012, the home Olympics, of course, the press were building things up and people were building expectations of you as well. And you came away with a bronze medal, which is still incredible. And Twitter reacted in a not so kind way. Many people did. I know many people were still incredibly proud for your medals, but there was that response with trolling and some of the press um, reacting inappropriately. How did that affect you? I think the thing is, it's one of those that everyone had put that expectation out there. That expectation was, I'm going to get two gold medals again. I couldn't ever come out and say, guys, I'm not going to get two gold medals, because then it would look like it had been really negative, and I couldn't possibly say that. Um, everyone in the sport knew it was so unrealistic for me to get two gold medals again. I'm not saying it was impossible, but I think people knew the sport had massively changed in them four years because we went through this super shiny suit era, which I won't get too technical on you, but things completely changed. And it was one of those that for the 400, I would I went in eighth. 
I actually went in eighth. So to go from eighth to third and getting that bronze medal was huge because it was so unexpected. I only just made it into that final. So that was massive for me um, because that really happens from an outside lane that you end up getting that medal. So I was massively proud of that. Obviously, the 800 was different. Um, and it was one of those that was just really difficult to get my head around because as athletes, we um, are used to criticism. I'm certainly used to getting analysed and that's what we do anyway. But the fact that people sat at home who, when you clicked on their profile, hadn't really done anything or kind of hadn't achieved anything, they're commenting going, you're such a disappointment for getting a third, for getting third. And I'm sat there going, oh God, I've disappointed everyone and I've let everyone down. And then after a while you start going, well, what have they done? What are they third in the world at? And it it starts to make you really angry because I was like, "I've, I've come third. Like, it's not terrible. I've not totally car crashed here like I've still got a medal guys but obviously it wasn't the expectation that everybody had for me um so I think that disappointment was always going to be there because everyone thought I was going to get two gold medals again um and the trolling and that sort of stuff to be fair I will openly accept any sort of criticism if it's fair like if somebody said to me oh you got this wrong and this is how you do it I'd be like fine because I'm one of those people you can always learn and I'm open to that but it's when people comment on my appearance that I was like, I just don't get it. And I still don't get it today. I've given up trying to understand the life of a troll because I'm like, why do I need to be pretty or look a certain way to swim? I was like, guys, I'm not trying to be a model here. Like, it's absolutely fine. Like, this body has given me four Olympic medals. I'll take it. Like, <laughs> and I just don't understand why everyone was so obsessed with my appearance. Like, I've never come out and stated I'm really attractive or pretty. Like, I agree with you, I'm not attractive. So let's move on. What what does that have to do with my sport? Were you yourself, because you were a young adult at that time, you say that you were driven to it, but were you aware that what you were doing was quite literally against the rules and illegal, even though everyone else was doing it? Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, I think uh, we all did. It was mm. kind of a suit. But the, the problem was it was so institutionalized that although it was um, uh, known, because everyone knew it was wrong, wrong, you had to do it in secret. You had to have everything was done. Uh, you had two phones, you had secret doctor, you'd go to different countries. You'd, it, was, uh, it was a bit mafia-esque. Uh, yet at the same time, within the sports and those racing, the majority knew that was just how you did it. And it wasn't, it was, it was a really, really horrible place at the time because it was essentially a, a criminal culture. And in order to, to survive, you, uh, or you could survive without it. And I had done, I won big races without doping, but in order to win the biggest races, you were going to have to join the mob basically. And, and I joined the mob and it was, it, that then accentuated my behavior um, because then my loneliness and my times away became even more became secretive. I'd go to different countries to go off the grid to to do my doping. I'd I'd isolate myself completely, then get success, not be able to tell anybody what I'd been doing, lie, and it just became uh, it it became very destructive. I suppose an enormous question is, and obviously you can only give your opinion. Why did performance-enhancing drugs become so normalised and institutionalised within the sport of cycling? Uh, well, it's, it's 80 years, 
probably a hundred years um, from the very first Tour de France. I mean, if you look at the second Tour de France, I think yeah. the first three riders were were written off the race for cheating. You know, it just it, it had been part of the sport to the degree where it had become uh, it, it was a doping culture. Um, and everybody knew it was in it. It was brought to light publicly in the 1998 Festina affair. Mm -hmm. The thing was, in the 1990s, the drug started to get much more advanced. And, and, had and a, with a lack of testing. And with a lack of testing. You couldn't test them. You couldn't find... Yeah, there's a lack of testing, plus they didn't have the test that could actually find the, the products. Uh, and if you go through the history of sports, it had been in the, the, the beginning of the 20th century. It had been to the degree of microdose cyanide kind of like you'd have alcohol you'd have cocaine then you had amphetamines then you had cortisone so there's all eras of doping within the sport mm. and it was in the 1990s where the science got so advanced that you you had epo erythropoietin which was um a, a red blood cell boosting hormone um which is it gave you the same benefit in a syringe that it would take you three weeks at altitude to gain um and so that became the the uh, de rigueur choice of the peloton because it turns it could turn a donkey into a racehorse but it could turn a race could turn a racehorse into a superhero so it was kind of one of those ones where the whole sport changed mm -hmm. and it became a it became if you wanted to win a grand tour um a tour de force is a three-week stage race it was widely accepted that you could not do it without epo and so it just became par for the course. And then let's not forget that it was the same era of Lance Armstrong, who, who was using that product, that, that drug, and was also at the same time being feted as the greatest athlete on the planet. And so the clean athlete as well. The greatest clean athlete. So it became really complex. Um, you know, everybody was wearing the yellow wristbands. It was, he was a hero. And yet within the peloton, everyone knew but you couldn't do anything about it and nobody was doing anything about it. And so it, that's what started to blur the lines. It was, well, Lance is getting away with it. So uh, no one's gonna be able to beat him unless they do the same thing. And so it was, it, it was a very gray and messy. And it, it actually, after a hundred years of the Tour de France by 2003, 2004, I think the breaking point had come. And that's where I was banned in 2004. Yeah. And then, it, then it's taken another 10, 10 years really to, to clean it up and turn it into an anti-doping culture versus a doping culture. So you're, let's fast forward slightly then. So you get back from Sri Lanka and India and then the New Zealand kind of series is around the corner in the mm -hmm. summer of 2021. <laughs> I've obviously been doing a lot of reading uh, about various articles uh, and yeah. you've spoken about this as a learning experience, but let's talk about what the build-up was like. You mentioned the media already. How were you dealing with these external pressures? Because the international game is that step above mm -hmm. uh, from, from the regional aspect of things. What was that like for you? How did you cope with the spotlight? Yeah, it was different. I mean... I was lucky, you know, I knew going back into that 2021 season that if I started well, um, it was sort of made clear already that there were certain people, um, you know, like Joss Butler, Bairstow, people who weren't going to be available for that series. So I knew that if I could start well, there was a chance. Um, and luckily, you know, I started well. People start talking about you. People start analysing you on the telly. People start tagging you and stuff on Instagram. Um, and I, th I think the key thing was you know, I didn't, I tried my best not to get sucked too far into it. Um, I feel like I probably read more and listened to more than I should have. 
um, looking back now on it. Um, but, you know, I really enjoyed the fact that, you know, I was opening my phone in the morning and there's people saying, oh, James Bracey, this guy's the next England number three and he's got, he's done this and, you know, this is the great thing about him and um, people that you sort of journalists and stuff that you watch, again, watch on the telly are chatting about me. You know, it was, it was like the novelty was great. Um, however, I think I learned quickly that you need to try and park that. Um, you need to try and take that with a pinch of salt um, and just make sure that you focus on yourself and the job you need to do. Because realistically, test cricket is that step up. It is obviously more difficult, more challenging, more fatiguing, more demanding than county cricket. But it's the same skill. It's the same act of batting. It's the same, you know, bowlers bowling, trying to get you out and you're trying to hit runs. It's, it's nothing different in that respect. So if you can maintain those same processes that you use in a county scenario, um, that's why you're there is because you've done done things well. So keep being yourself and keep doing those things. I, I think I didn't quite do that enough and I probably got sucked into, to, you know, the external sort of noise that comes with it. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes sense. All that kind of external noise and pressure can become overwhelming, I suppose, mm. and distract you from the job at hand. I mean, I remember when I spoke to uh, Don Bess last year about it as well. He said now, after his first tour, he learned for the next tour, delete social media. He deletes the apps off his phone and then he doesn't see anything, which is probably with hindsight now, you probably think that you have a, would have a better approach to it. You've had yeah. that novelty, as you call it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It is exciting seeing your name there saying, you know, you're playing for England. You've got this and that. You've got the commentators and the pundits saying your name. But you've got to be wary of what you do read because it can have a de- detrimental effect on your mentality. Exactly. And, uh, and that initial build-up, it was great. But then it was the fact that when those games started and I wasn't necessarily performing as I'd like, I continued to read it, which is where I then realised, well... It's great beforehand, but now it's slagging you off. Or not like people, but everyone's on Twitter slagging you off, saying you're rubbish. He's got two ducks. Why is he playing? Blah, blah, blah. Like, and you look at it and you're like, oh, crap. Are they right? Like, am I that bad? And I think looking at both sides of the coin, what would I rather read the good, but then also read the bad and that has a detrimental effect on me or just park it all together and just focus on, you know, me, my game, the people that matter around me um, and their opinions. Um, I think that's a lot, it's a lot better way to go. And I think I've, I've done the same as Dom in terms of, I don't use Twitter, I don't really use Twitter anymore. I log in every now and again to retweet stuff, you know, for, for sponsors and charities that, and people, you know, my local club and stuff like that. But I don't, have the app just so that I can't sit there and scroll because there's so many people who have an opinion. Um, and there's always going to be one, at least one opinion that you don't agree with or goes against you. So yeah, I'm trying to sort of fade it out and just use it how I want to use it. Um, I think that's probably the, the healthiest way to go. I want to talk about personal experience then from uh, going from professional sport to retirement and then also your experiences uh, during lockdown with your own mental health because you, you probably found it very, very difficult to stop 
um, particularly with lockdown. And I know the transition from professional sport with restart, there is uh, some help with transition there. But you you had some personal um, experiences with your own mental health with, with lockdown, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so I, um, you know, I, I, look, I actually didn't stop. I mean, I, I had moments where I mm. sat down and was like, you know, what am I doing? Because everything I, 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 everything I think was, was, everything I deal with was public facing. So, um, you know, I don't really, um, I didn't have anything to do per, per se, but actually, you know, I went and, you know, caught myself pretty quickly. And I think <laughs> on this note, again, this fits into everything I've said about, you know, we're very vocal about stuff now. Um, and actually there's two lessons. Talk without action is nothing. So, you know, doing, you know, just talking about your problems and actually making no changes and moaning about it is never going to fix anything. So, you know, mental health only works if you make a difference. Uh, I think the other issue is that people label things now readily. But again, we're going too far the other way. So, you know, I sat down in lockdown and had a couple of days where I was like head in hands. Like, what the fuck am I doing with myself? What am I, you know, what's going to happen? What, you know, and doesn't have depression and I was having a bad day. I was like, mm. I'm having a bad day. I, you know, what am I going to do? Chloe, you know, Chloe, we luckily have, you know, one of the other things is surround yourself with good people who, who understand you. And she was like, look, you know, this is what you do. This is what you like to, you know, let's write a list of what, what things you're doing and go away and do it. And I was, you know, I ended up, uh, editing books, setting up an, uh, a podcast, a production company, doing DJ live streams. I, I did it and I got back, back on track. Didn't mean I had depression. You know, if I'm nervous before, you know, going to speak in front of a group of people, I don't have social anxiety. I'm nervous. And we're trying to label and, and control natural human emotions. And it's getting stupid. Like there are a lot of people out there with a lot of these actual problems, but being nervous, scared, uh, worried about how you look, um, you know, not thinking you look great in great shape, having a bad day. It doesn't mean, you know, you're depressed, body dysmorphia, anxiety, social anxiety, you know. I mean, people used to be worried. Now everyone's got anxiety. And it's like, the actual anxiety is where you're, you know, your heart rate races, you can't think, can't speak, you know, have an absolute meltdown. You know, Chloe talks, she's proper, got proper anxiety at times. You know, just being worried about stuff's not not anxiety. So we've sort of got ourselves into a spot of bother now where we're labelling stuff all the time, which is, you know, which is frustrating. Yeah. And as you say as well, surrounding yourself, having that support bubble, but also having someone who's actually in tune with what they're going through. Chloe, Chloe when I talk to Chloe, she's so switched on. Yeah. And she know, And she, well, quite literally knows her shit. Yeah, um, she's far more intelligent than I am. In terms of maintaining it then for you, you love to work. I know that you've got your book, your book coming out. You've got your podcast, which are epic. You're touring. Uh, you're always doing business and stuff. But when do you give yourself time uh, to make sure that, because I know you enjoy work, but you have to enjoy yourself and your own personal time. When do you allow that to happen? And do you think with the family coming, that that's an opportunity to change perspectives? Yes. I mean, look, Chloe, I mean, look, I've always struggled to switch off. Um, I'm a bit of a workaholic. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, what it looks like when we have um, our daughter in terms of, you know, and, and I look, I want to be fully involved. Will I need to structure my life and get better balance? Yeah, of course I will. Um, you know, are we both guilty of sort of overworking and allowing us to, you know, to constantly sit there? Yes. But I think, you know, I've identified you know, what we enjoy is going for food. You know, we enjoy, we enjoy that. We enjoy kind of experiences and stuff. So I think when we get, you know, when we have her, it will be, it will be slightly better and you'll have to make those time because you won't, you'll be sleep deprived. You will be tired. You will be all over the place. And, you know, Chloe will need a lot of support as will, you know, as will our daughter. So um, I'm kind of quite 
yeah, I'm quite prepared to do that really and get that balance right. And it, it you know, I think it does. I can't tell you what it's going to look like now because I don't know. But you know, when she's born, I've taken all you know a month off and a couple of weeks. But then obviously, I earn by doing very different things, and it mm. requires me to to travel at times. So it's it's going to be a fine balancing act. And will I get it right? Always no. Will I endeavour to do it? Yeah, because I want to support my wife and baby. You know. Once again, a massive, massive thank you to every single guest that's come onto the show and been so open and honest and had such a raw conversation with me to really inspire these listeners. You, the listener, in fact. That's it for this series then. Stay tuned on our social media to see when a new series might be coming out of Headstrong. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.